Welcome to Frictionless Marketing, an exploration of how modern marketers are building their brands, reaching their audiences, and thriving in this post-advertising world. Today, as part of our Influence 100 series in partnership with The Homes Report, we're speaking with Ken Hong, the head of global corporate communications at LG. Ken has been at LG for over 10 years, and throughout the course of that time, he's witnessed and led the company through a number of technological evolutions and changes. Ken currently resides in Korea, but his position has taken him all over the world, giving him a very global perspective on consumer technology and the state of communications. We discuss Ken's philosophy of leadership during times of comprehensive company changes and evolutions, and his overall thoughts on today's state of marketing and communications. Now without further ado, here's Lippy Taylor President Paul Dyer in conversation with Ken Hong, Head of Global Corporate Communications at LG. So obviously law and political science are both um, various uh, different versions of the business of persuasion. Um, curious, do you, because it doesn't seem to be that common, although we've just named a couple of you know, uh, instances, but should we be looking at political science uh, majors when we're recruiting for public relations and communications? I think it is not, um, it is not a bad area to look in. Um, I think when it comes to analytical thinking or trying to see what's around the corner uh, before you actually get there, um, I think you know, those are the skills that um, you know, the ones who are really into the, um, the politics of communications, mm-hmm. I think they're pretty good at seeing those things. I had a lot of friends who would have made great communications practitioners. Um, I have a lot of friends who got into um, politics by way of communications. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people who I think could do both very well. Yeah. And a lot of people you know, former government, government, uh, you know, types who do do a lot of good communications now after they've left the White House. Uh, I don't think it's, it's a bad area to look in. However, most people don't think of it off the top of their head as, as being that close. Right. As you said. Right. See, one of the things you said in the past is that, uh, instead of reading books about PR, uh, we should be reading books about psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny. So I, it resonated with me as well because I actually started in psychology and then moved into political science. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious though, first of all, do you have a book that you recommend to people as one that they really should read, you know, to better understand psychology or for, you know, certain psychology trends? Um, but let's start with that. Absolutely. Well, Again, I don't think there's any one, but I think it's that class of books, you know, the bestsellers, the, the Freakonomics and the Tipping Points, anything by Mal- Malcolm Gladwell or, um, you know, uh, economists. I think books by economists that deal with, um, you know, psychological questions. I think those are fascinating. Uh, I think they are very relevant to our business. I think Edward Bernays being related to Sigmund Freud is not a fluke. Okay, and a lot of people don't know the history. They don't know the background of how we, how this industry got to where it is. And I think uh, when you connect the dots, when you go back and connect the dots, there's this is not this is not just me saying that there's a lot of relevance. 
uh, between uh, you know psychology, psychology and, and economics and communications and public relations. But I think a lot of people have thought that over the de- uh, decades. Another thing you've been quoted as saying, and I actually believe it was with the Holmes Report uh, a couple years ago um, when you were also recognized as one of the Influence 100, so congratulations on that. Um, you said that comms should not be expected to have a direct impact on business. And I believe the context was saying we shouldn't expect comms in a, in a silo on its, on its own to have a direct impact on business. Um, but obviously we're in this age of analytics and ever increasing emphasis on ROI. So how do you encourage people to think about the value of communications and what it delivers to the business? Yeah, I um, you know, kind of bit my tongue after I said that because I was worried that people would take it the wrong way, but I, you know, this what I said has evolved over over the years, over 30 years. This is not something um, you know, I suddenly decided uh, was, you know, the new direction we we're going to go or the new direction I was going to push. No, I think over the years I've seen uh, myself and a lot of my fellow practitioners um, hurt ourselves. You know, we've hurt ourselves by um, saying things that have later come back and haunted us. You know, when we say, hey, we're cheaper than advertising or, oh, yeah, you, you know, we, dollar for dollar, you know, it's, uh, it's the most uh, bang for your buck. I mean, these things are coming back and really starting to, you know, being on the client side, really starting to hurt us. And we're our own worst enemy when we position communications in this, hey, we're cheaper than the other forms of comms kind of argument when we talk to clients. Now, because I'm not, I'm not, you know, under the same kind of pressure to have to sell, you know, PR services, I can say that. But um, even internally here at my own organization, I see people saying, hey, but why do you want, why do you want, uh, you know, me to pay for that event? Or, you know, why, you know, is this costing so much, this event? It's only, you know, it's only, uh, you know, t- you know, one, one off event and it only has, uh, you know, five celebrities. You know, why is it costing me $500,000? I mean, these things are really difficult to c- explain to a CFO who's been hearing all his or her life that, hey, PR is very cost effective. And so I do think there is um, a problem with the way we position communications right now as part of the marketing mix. So we basically need to stop saying that we're cheap. (laughs) I don't think we've ever been cheap or free. And that's the whole thing. You know, if we were cheap and free, how how are these holding companies pulling in double-digit growth every year? Right. (laughs) That's a fair question. So you um, and so yeah, it's been uh, it's we've been fooling ourselves into into telling uh, ourselves that if we say this to clients, uh, you know, they'll buy it. Right. So speaking of holding companies, so prior to LG, you worked at two different uh, country offices of large global holding companies. Um, yes. I'm curious your perspective on you know the there's obviously uh, pros and cons. To working with locally owned and operated agencies in various markets versus a global agency that has offices in all those markets. I'm just curious your perspective on it, having been both you know on the agency side and now on the client side in the global role. I think holding companies, and I said this 
boy, back in the early 90s, um, when somebody asked me, why did you join, uh, at the time it was MSL? And I said, uh, I believe I said, because it's, you know, these big agencies are sexy. You know, I mean, I was talking, you know, Mad Men before Mad Men was a thing. You know, uh, I, in my mind, I had always envisioned these big Madison Avenue type holding companies doing communications to be like Don Draper, you know, <laughs> sitting in his office having a cigarette uh, and uh, coming up with real good creative uh, campaigns. Now, I still believe that. I think the holding companies are the most creative that the industry has to offer. And they're able to borrow from their various sister and brother agencies to get to that point. But I also think it's a young person's game. I think these holding companies are viciously tough to... um, to stay a part of when you do this thing for 30 years. And, you know, the pressure for those double-digit growth is so, so intense that it really wears you down. So I do think there's a great opportunity for mid-sized firms and for local firms uh, once you've kind of done that. And once you've done all that, the holding company and the big agency and traveling from country to country and being MD here and MD there, then you just want to settle down and do your job. And I think... Uh, that is a great evolution of this industry. I think there is something for everybody at every decade. It's a really interesting perspective, and you've obviously modeled it in your own career in terms of you know, growing up in Bucks County, uh, <laughs> you know, gr- graduating from Penn State, and then off to Shanghai, Hong Kong, Bangkok, Seoul. Um, so I'm also curious, what you know, what is your perspective on? living in uh, you know, various countries, living around the world physically, you know, actually living around the world to gain a global perspective or in the current kind of globalized you know, landscape, is that necessary, right? Can you have a global I, perspective without living in different countries? I think you can, but I don't think you need it. I don't think everyone needs a glo- global perspective. I still think communications itself is a very local industry. In other words, you're going to find many more job opportunities being a U.S. comms expert than a European comms expert or an Asian comms expert or even the least in demand, a global comms expert. Because roles roles for people with a global comms uh, expertise are very, very few and far between. So if you want, to, and this is, the, this is the advice I would give anybody who wants to study uh, in this industry, is stick to one market, whether that market is one country or, or a small region. But again, you really need to say that I know this market really well. In other words, myself, having, been, having worked in uh, five different uh, international cities, and being able to speak my way around uh, a lot of different uh, global topics doesn't really matter to a local client. And so I think for someone with this kind of background, I think we're very useful in-house in a large company like LG where we can oversee uh, a very large network and we can kind of smell when something is off. I think that is the skill that we bring to the table. We're not 
I'm not parachuting into, let's say, Mexico and, and pitching uh, Mexican journalists. That's not our role. Our role is to be able to um, take all these ideas and strategies and concepts and know when something is off because that local person either doesn't really know that market or is trying to get away with something a little shady. I think, you know, being able to call baloney when it's baloney is, is really our number one useful skill. It's the, it's the fine tuning of the spidey sense. So, <laughs> Very good. So <clears throat> how do you think about managing, you know, a global strategy with then empowering local activation? You really need to let them run the show. But um, I would say the vast majority of the people here in my organization who work alongside of me, but only see me once a year <laughs> because they're based in Cairo or, uh, you know, uh, Lagos uh, or Johannesburg. I mean, the reason they listen to the advice I give them, because when I say something, it really makes sense to them. And I'll tell you what, it is really, this is where that legal desire to be a lawyer background comes into great play because, you know, it really takes a lot of internal convincing to get people on board. Uh, and, I, and I cannot say with uh, any more emphasis how important good internal communications is uh, in, in our jobs. Yep. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. So you've been at LG for a very interesting 10 years, right? Uh, 10 years uh, ago, uh, they... Go ahead. Sorry. 11 next month. 11. 11, 11 years. Um, so 11 years ago, obviously LG was a known player in some sectors of the market, but probably not yet the market leader. Now it's, I'm looking at the, the LG television on my wall here. It's become a global leader in many um, various consumer electronics markets um, and is obviously you know in, engaged in many different business units. How have you managed the transition from a communication standpoint from being the, the challenger brand to being the market leader? Because we are still a challenger brand in more product areas than we are market leader. That's how. I don't think this job will ever be done because we will always come up with some uh, new fangled product to have to push. Uh, if it's not, you know, if it's not a washing machine, then it's something silly or crazy or off the wall, you know, like a modular phone or a styler, you know, waterless, uh, you know, washing machine. So these things keep us young. These things keep us uh, awake at night. But I don't think we will ever be market leader in everything. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think, important. If we were market leader in everything, I think we would take our eye off the ball. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're talking about innovation and innovating new products and, you know, into new right. sectors. Um, I'm curious, is communications, what role does communications play with informing some of those um, innovation priorities, decisions, opportunities? Um, is it primarily just a product and engineering driven thing and communications sort of comes in later? Or is communications involved in the earlier stages of the innovation process? LG being still a very Korean company, um, I don't think for a minute that you know we are anything. We run anything like uh, an American or a European company. Uh, you know, 
when you get right down to it, uh, it's still run very hierarchically. And so uh, even the marketing people here complain, uh, even the product development people here say the same thing. It's very much engineering driven. Even the design people are brought in very late. And so, you know, we're not, I don't know if there is one way to develop a product. Uh, Apple does it their way. Samsung does it their way. I don't know if there is because, to be honest, I haven't worked at too many uh, technology companies that make consumer products. But I can probably guess that we're all different. But here at LG, it is very engineering driven. Now, sometimes that's good because, you know, these people really do know their technology. But sometimes it's also a negative if, you know, if the designers are told by engineers that you can't design it this way because this is the way we have to put this together on the inside and you have to design around it. There aren't that many options left for designers sometimes. And, and the same thing with communications. If you tell us this is, if the engineers tell us this is what this product is supposed to do and, if, you know, no matter how you try to spin it, it's, you know, that's not the case. I mean, then we are very limited in what we can say. But I think part of me having survived here 11 years is I figured it out. I know how to get around those challenges. And sometimes those challenges are unsurmountable. It, sometimes that we've had a lot of products that we haven't communicated. It just goes out there for sale and, you know, the retailers have to communicate it. So that happens a lot too. We do not put out an announcement or a, or a microsite or a tweet about every product. We have too many. So that must be an interesting conversation when you have a, a product manager right, who really needs their, their personal career success is dependent on a new product launch. And you have to tell them, I'm sorry, but this doesn't meet the threshold for us to, from a priority standpoint. You, you said it perfectly. That's exactly what that conversation sounds like. You know, here are the check, you know, here are the check marks that you have to uh, fill in. And if you can only fill in, fill in 80% of them, then we can't help you. I mean, it's not that we're not saying that I don't want to help you. It's just that we cannot do anything for you via traditional comms. Now, there are other ways to get to where you want to go. And we will give them those options. But those are usually uh, different teams, different departments, or maybe even different uh, you know, office cities altogether. So, again, these, this is my role right now, corporate comms. Uh, I also you know, do product comms. But, again, those product comms decisions are driven by the product planners. And I just implement. But when it comes to corporate comms, we make the call here in my office. Mm -hmm. So... I'm curious, coming back to the measurement conversation earlier, you've got corporate comms and product comms, and they no doubt are, they have very different stakeholder groups and uh, different probably expectations in terms of you know what they can deliver. Um, you've been outspoken in the past that agencies should stop counting clippings and reporting impressions and things like that. So, you know, what are the metrics that matter, and are they you know are they different you know on the product comms side versus the corporate side? I think they are, but I think even my own management here doesn't make that differentiation very uh, often. Um, you know, clipping counting still goes on. Um, clicks are still important to some people. But what I like is the fact that it's a case-by-case. 
uh, it's not, there's no one metric model for everyone. Uh, and, and I mean that across business units. I mean that across different uh, overseas offices. They all have their own needs. And I say, find what works best for you. Um, you know, right when it comes right down to it, they may change the way they measure whenever they get a new boss, when, when a new president comes in. And I don't know if you knew this, but uh, at LG and, and many other Korean companies, they do this rotation where you get fresh blood coming in every couple of years, every three, four, five years. Um, that's how we keep things always at a very high level of uh, uh, speed. I mean, we're always moving. Nobody really gets burned out here. Um, and it's good and bad, once again. But whenever somebody new comes in, they, they may say, hey, I want to see the clips. <laughs> mm-hmm. Tell me how many clips I got. I mean, it's really up to the local management uh, what their measure of success is. Mm-hmm. I, I have said, and again, being on the client side, I can say this. Uh, stop counting clippings, okay? But at the same time, it is cheap. It is easy for everyone to understand. And it is one number that is very universal, uh, whether, it, when, whether it's the number of stories or the number of pairs of eyeballs. Like, uh, the, the point is that it's a number that very uh, few people would not understand. And so when you start talking about all these um, qualitative numbers, then it starts to get kind of fuzzy for some people. Mm-hmm. And obviously on, on the product side, a lot of times what people are looking for is some sort of a comparison to advertising, and uh, which is you know fraught with challenges. Um, I'm not sure if you saw it, but last week AdAge put out an article about how PR agencies are now competing and winning against ad agencies in you know, big creative pitches. Um, this isn't new to a lot of comms people, but um, it was a revelation in the advertising world. What are your thoughts on this sort of inevitable bridging slash overlap uh, that's taking place between more creative-driven marketing and, and PR and comms? That's a, that's a fantastic question because I would say um, the direction my career was going 12 years ago was exactly to answer that question. Would comms be more effective if we were more integrated with other uh, forms of you know, communications? And I went to Thailand. And the reason I went to Thailand was because there was a, I, I think at the time, uh, McCann was one of the foremost integrators of the various communications practices. And they had this world group philosophy, which I really, really loved. And they had the, you know, that the PRs and the advertising and the event and digital all under the same roof. And we were, you know, we were smoking out of the same peace pipe every morning. Uh, and these were colleagues, not just people I went to see whenever I needed ideas for a campaign. These are people I ate lunch with every day. And I really thought that was what I wanted, the kind of environment I wanted to work, work in. But I don't think it works for every client. I, I am convinced of it now that you need lines. And with some clients may not care whether this creative idea is coming from advertising or the media buying arm or the PR arm. But I still see a lot of clients who, who do make that distinction and they don't want to pay advertising agency rates for a PR idea or, or what have you. And so I do think my thinking has changed dramatically after having been in that environment for two years 
that, hey, PR still has a really important role and it should not overlap all the time with these other practices. However, the fact that we can compete with advertising isn't really all that surprising to me. I think I've thought we could back in the early 90s when I thought we were mad men. I really think this is true across many disciplines. Sorry about that. Um, is I think the media buying companies can compete with PR, and I think events can compete with advertising and so forth. I mm-hmm. don't think it's ex- ex- exclusive. I think there's a lot of overlap, and I don't know if we need to fix that anymore. So one of the areas driving everybody to overlap has been influencer marketing. What is your, yes. you know, do you, do you believe that influencer marketing belongs in a specific discipline or should it be sort of a shared realm? I think it's very difficult area. And um, while maybe 15 years ago when this was uh, uh, just coming around as, as an important uh, trend, I thought, hey, this is an area that comms and PR should really take the reins off. I'm not so sure I feel that way anymore anymore because what I see now, I joined Twitter in 2009 and back then I was like, oh, this is awesome. We're going to control this. And I think, you know, these two-way conversations, we're the best equipped to do it. I think the way social media has evolved makes it very difficult for any one discipline to own it. Um, you, you look at YouTube, it's very difficult for PR to have much of a role in YouTube when all these reviewers are demanding, you know, five figures to look at your product, and talk about your product. And I'm not, you know, I don't have that, those kinds of budgets, nor do I want those kinds of budgets. I still like talking to writers. I still like talking to content creators who want to cover our products because they find it interesting not because we gave them Mm $50,000. And so I do not believe anymore that PR, I can only speak for PR, that we should control, quote unquote, social media because I see social media moving in a direction that I don't want to get involved in personally. (laughs) I think... Which is is pay for play. Right, and I think you're right about that. And I think think your words are going to resonate with a lot of people on that. Um, let me just wrap up by saying thank you. We appreciate the insights. Uh, congratulations again on being a Holmes uh, Influence 100. Take, take care. Take Bye-bye. care. All right. So as always, here are some key takeaways from this conversation with Ken Hong. Number one, study psychology and political science or hire those who have. Ken is very vocal about the importance of the less discussed disciplines that enable communications professionals, specifically political science and psychology. Ken claims that his studies in both of these ancillary fields helped him tremendously as a communications leader since they gave him a fundamentally better understanding of humans and the basis of culture. Number two, think global but stay local. Despite working in five international cities, Ken finds that experience in global comms is in low demand, whereas local expertise in any given market is much more valuable in the communications landscape. Ken recommends that comms leaders have a baseline understanding of global communications but remain focused on their local markets since global expertise is really important to local clients. Number three, 
keep your challenger mindset. Part of Ken's success comes down to his refusal to rest on his laurels, even when LG achieves market leader status in any of their given fields. In Ken's view, there's no fundamental sense of having arrived. Considering the speed of change and regardless of any fleeting level of success, he believes brands need to remain on their feet and in the game. In an industry like electronics with its diverse array of products, it's critical to always be cognizant of the brands that aren't market leaders and keep pushing them forward. Anyway, thank you again, as always, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to us if you shared it with your friends and colleagues on social media. Don't forget to follow the show at Lippy Taylor. That's L-I-P-P-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R on Instagram. And if you want to learn more about Lippy Taylor, visit us at LippyTaylor.com. Thank you for listening to Frictionless Marketing. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out Paul's best-selling book, Friction Fatigue, What the Failure of Advertising Means for Future-Focused Brands. In Friction Fatigue, Paul explains to readers why advertising is broken and provides a frictionless marketing framework to help build your brand in an era where advertising is no longer the answer. You'll learn how to protect your business against competitors and lead the pack with fresh marketing strategies that will help you prepare for a future where the consumer rules. Friction Fatigue is now available on Amazon and as a book on tape on audible.com. Thanks again for listening.